Enterprise Management 360. Hello, my name is Bob Tazi, a freelance IT industry analyst, and I will be moderating this EM360 podcast, assessing, detecting, and responding to cyber threats. Threats in cyberspace arise for two main reasons. Either there is a weakness in the IT infrastructure, or there is an interest taken by an attacker, be they a criminal or a nation-state actor. Most businesses know they must mitigate cyber threats for their own good, but also because regulators require them to. The problem is that the threat landscape is ever-changing as technology evolves and attackers innovate. Ensuring an organization has the skills, agility, and underlying platforms and processes to understand, detect, and manage cyber threats is one of the most compelling challenges faced by any 21st century business. Regulatory change, such as the EU's General Data Protection Regulation, GDPR, and the Network and Information Systems Directive, NIS, have pushed the issue up to the board level of large businesses. Other regulators are taking the lead from the EU on many of these issues. Smaller businesses face just as much risk. They also hold intellectual property of interest to nation states or personal data of value to cyber criminals. There may also be potential weak points in supply chains or distribution channels, a chance for attackers to find a back door into a larger organization. The challenge is to keep up with the changing nature of threats and be able to respond effectively when the inevitable happens. To guide us through assessing, detecting, and responding to cyber threats, I'm pleased to be joined by Charles DeVault, Chief Strategy Officer of Secure Data. Charles, perhaps you could tell us a bit more about yourself and Secure Data. Hi, Bob, and thanks for having me. So as you said, my name is Charles van der Walt. I'm a South African based out of our offices in Cape Town. I act for Secure Data as a Chief Strategy Officer, which is a role I assumed after my business, SensePost, got acquired by Secure Data in 2012. SensePost is a attack and penetration testing business, which is what my background is. Secure Data, on the other hand, offers a full range of cybersecurity services. Everything from the pen testing component that SensePost brings through vulnerability management, consulting, and managed security services. So you might call it a managed security service provider, uh, Secure Data, or an MSSP, is that right? At its core, I think that is Secure Data's strength, yeah. Augmented by the sort of deep technical skill it gets from the likes of SensePost. Charles, what should the priority be for an organization wanting to improve its cybersecurity? Should it be finding and removing vulnerabilities in its infrastructure, or should it be assessing the external threats that it faces? Today, both of those things would fall under the banner of you know, decent cyber hygiene. Those are, those are things that businesses have to do, and I would say you know, it's not either, it's both. But if you would ask me to prioritize, I think I would argue that probably there are some other things businesses have to make sure they have in place first before they consider either one of those practices. So, you know, things like proper multi-factor authentication, decent internal network segmentation, 
decent filtering on the firewalls, decent management of their, their, their default images. Those things, I think, are a prerequisite. You can't patch the security problem if you don't have those things in place. But assuming you have those things in place, then I think my argument would be to put a detection practice in place first. The argument for detection is compelling. You know, we've come to understand that compromise is inevitable, no matter what else we do. So you kind of want to know when something goes wrong and be in a position to understand what that is. And as it happens, the kinds of discipline, the kinds of processes, the kind of understanding of yourself as an organization that's required to do threat detection well also sets you up very well to do vulnerability management well. So I think that would be my uh, order of priorities. If an organization came to this knowing that their cybersecurity was inadequate, the first thing they really need is an assessment and to put the basics in place, and then they can start working on threat detection, understanding both vulnerabilities and potential attack vectors on their organization. Yeah, I would say that's right. So let's imagine for a moment that there were no external threats. If that was the case, then vulnerabilities would just be an annoyance rather than a, an existential problem. What sort of external threats should organizations be most worried about today, given that they are a reality? So this is a point that's very interesting to me. We like to think about external threats you know, in terms of the innovation, I suppose, on the part of the threat actor, you know, new strains of malware, new vulnerabilities, uh, new exploits. And those things are, of course, a factor, but I think they're really a symptom of what's happening and what's shaping the space that we operate in. The things that I think we need to be aware of and need to be worried about are the systemic factors that are creating an environment in which these threats exist. And those systemic factors, I think, include elements like the investment that nations are making in offensive cyber capabilities. A very good example of that would be uh, WannaCry and NotPetya that emerged effectively from NSA investments. NSA being the national security agency in the US. Yeah. I think the whole cryptocurrency landscape, which enables cybercrime, is a big factor. I think the supply chain and the risks that we inherit from the technologies we buy and implement in our networks, I think that's a big factor. And I think regulation plays a big role. You, you mentioned this earlier, the role, the impact that things like GDPR is having. I think those are the sort of systemic elements that are creating an environment where the odds really greatly favor the threat actor and are so almost heavily stacked against the defender that I think the assumption needs to be compromise and breach are inevitable. And so put a line under that, if you would ask me what should organizations be the most worried about, I would say they should be worrying about am I ready when you know the worst case scenario happens? Am I in a position to detect that and am I in a position to respond? Just to be clear, when you said things like NotPetya and um, WannaCry emerged from the NSA, what, what you mean by there is the code that was misused by attackers, the exploits were originally developed by the NSA. Is that correct? That's correct. The exploits were originally developed by the NSA, stolen allegedly by uh, Russian intelligence operators and leaked out onto the internet. I wasn't asking you to name names, but to, to be clear, you weren't suggesting the NSA was the attacker in that case, although the USA has stood accused of being behind WannaCry. So there's no nation state, and by nation states, we mean America, China, Russia, Britain, whatever. You know, they all stand accused at various levels of getting a, 
over-involved in cyber activity, let's say. Exactly. And look, attribution in this space is extremely difficult, but the allegation is that those two campaigns, WannaCry and NotPetya, were run by the North Koreans and the Russians, respectively. So you're absolutely right. Just about every major national player in offensive cyber is involved somewhere in that narrative. This brings us on to the next question. But just before I ask that, we've talked about nation state actors and we've talked about cyber criminals. Is an organization on average, regardless of its size, more likely to be the victim of a cyber criminal than it is of a nation state? I think that the time of flying under the radar for small organizations is past. And I think there's two drivers for that. The one is because cryptocurrencies and particularly crypto mining allow attackers to monetize just about any kind of compromise. Any system that has a CPU now becomes a valid target. You know, whether that's for exploitation by ransomware or exploitation by a crypto mining, if an attacker can own a machine, they can use a machine. So in that sense, everyone's a target. But the other driver is that a lot of these operators have see value in systems that is disproportionate to the, to the size of the operation who owns those systems. And an example that I like to use to illustrate this is journalism. Journalists and newspapers in general have in the modern age become sort of find themselves front and center in sort of very significant international conflicts and therefore get targeted, you know, by very capable adversaries, but are in themselves still kind of small and often poorly resourced organizations. I use that just as an example of where that kind of disparity exists. I think there are many other smaller organizations that sit on systems or information that is of high value to an adversary. I was going to say, in a way, a journalist is just part of a supply chain, in this case of news, isn't it? Well, yeah, and then there's that too. You know, I think we're inclined to assume a lot of intent, a lot of deliberation on the part of the adversary. But as we saw again, and, and not to overuse this example, but as we saw again through NotPetya, a lot of what happens is not that deliberate. It's either accidental or opportunistic. The attacker finds what they can find to exploit and then sort of determines what value they can derive from it after the fact. That's exactly the way uh, WannaCry worked, wasn't it? Because in the UK in particular, the NHS, the National Health Service, got badly hit. But it wasn't even a target. It was just collateral damage uh, from the general WannaCry attack. Exactly. And that's a great example. We don't know this for a fact, but the assumption, the sort of working theory at the moment is that WannaCry escaped from the threat actors. And again, allegedly, that was the North Koreans. And the rumor has it that they were still testing this capability and hadn't fully weaponized it when it effectively escaped their control and ran amok in the way that it did. And NotPetya was you know, allegedly directly targeted at Ukraine, but escaped via these international links that you know, businesses have across the world and ended up affecting businesses all over. And I think uh, Stuxnet uh, behaved in a similar way, didn't it? It was targeted at the Iranian government, but soon found turned up elsewhere. So, uh, yeah. Exactly. And that's the nature of the internet, isn't it? Just briefly, you talked about two particular types of threat earlier. I mean, ransomware, I think many listeners will be aware of. It's a way of hijacking part of your infrastructure and demanding a ransom in order to um, give you control back. You also mentioned crypto mining. Is, is, does that tend to be random or targeted? How does that work, Charles? Crypto mining is the fallback position for any compromise. 
With crypto mining, what they do is they use the processor, the, the CPU of a compromised machine, to try and solve these cryptographic problems that result in a crypto coin, you know, either Monero or Bitcoin or whatever the case might be. So really, all they need is a sufficiently capable CPU. They load some code on it, and that CPU goes to work, quote-unquote, mining coins for the actor. Oh, I see. So it's just it's just hijacking resources in the same way as uh, machines have been recruited to botnets in the past to, uh, to launch DDoS attacks. Or exactly. Unlike ransomware, you want to try and run unnoticed, and in, in you're just stealing resources. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, exactly. So it's a more a sort of low and slow play than a deliberate in-your-face play. We, we've talked about all sorts of scary threats, uh, generic and real instances there, Charles, which I think will be a good reminder for listeners of what is out there. What basic strategy should any organization be adopting to protect themselves? So I think the starting point is to do a thorough and honest risk assessment. I think that businesses are still failing to appreciate how significant the threat is and how significant the impact could be if something goes wrong. One of the contributors to that misunderstanding or miscalculation is that we're still thinking about security, I think, primarily as a financial problem. So what do we stand to lose? And I think we need to understand that you know, cyber exists in a networked environment. So you have these secondary and tertiary impacts that can be very far-reaching. And you know, to understand that, if we look at what's happening in the U.S. and the city of Boston at the moment, so I say it's the city of Boston, but it's one of those major municipalities where the municipality is being attacked. And what's happening is that entire kind of societal ecosystem is collapsing because they can't get access to the resources and the services they need to conduct their business. So I think businesses need to understand that when they fail at security, it's not just them being impacted in isolation. It's an entire ecosystem that's being impacted. And then the second factor that contributes to that miscalculation, I think, is a misunderstanding of the, of the adversary and what the adversary wants. Uh, there, there was a time where we would assume relatively simple and predictable motives on the part of the adversary. But as we've discussed earlier, I think that's become much more complex and is much more in it for the adversary. So I think those two things have to be understood clearly by a business uh, that's trying to understand its own uh, risk posture. And then I think, you know, that needs to then be combined with thorough understanding of how that business is exposed in cyberspace, you know, what its uh, tax services look like and used to derive a thorough risk assessment. And I think from there, you know, every business is different. From, from there, one can determine what's most important and what should be done to mitigate those risks. Okay. You mentioned there the city of Boston is an example. There. One can imagine that the city of Boston is a reasonable size organization. So even larger organizations are struggling to keep on top of cyber threats and maintain the skills they need in-house. An alternative to that is to work with third parties who specialize in responding to threats. Do these sort of organizations, um, I used the term earlier, managed service security provider, an MSSP, do they scale to serve both large and small businesses? They absolutely do. I think the value proposition is often different. You know, I think for large businesses, it's often about ROI, about saving costs, uh, about establishing maybe a round-the-clock capability, which, you know, is difficult for them to do. 
for small businesses, I think it's very often about getting access to skills and technology capabilities that are very difficult for them to access directly. Uh, and particularly given the, the sort of financial constraints that many businesses find themselves under today. And how does a, a managed security service provider itself keep up with the change in threat landscape and ensure all its customers always have the best protection in place, given that the nature of the threats will vary for every customer that it has? I think that's exactly what a managed service provider has to be able to demonstrate to its customers. I think staying abreast of what's happening, staying abreast of the current threats is not trivial. I think attracting and retaining the right kinds of skills is not trivial. I think being able to consistently maintain an appropriate level of capability in cybersecurity is not trivial. But I think the successful and, um, and, and longer lasting providers in this space are able to do that and then able to demonstrate it to their customers also. And I think it's precisely one of the things that businesses should be looking for when they start engaging with managed services providers in this way. I mean, what you're saying is, uh, as any business, uh, you reference sales, so you're able to demonstrate the success you've achieved elsewhere, and that makes you attractive to other customers. But one of the biggest challenges for an MSSP is exactly the challenge that we just discussed is faced by its customers, is keeping cyber, cyber security skills it needs. So what makes it more attractive for an MSSP, like Secure Data, say, what makes that a more attractive workplace than the average enterprise for a, a skilled cybersecurity professional? Well, I don't think that fundamentally MSPs are more attractive, but I think MSPs, because it's their core business, should be making themselves more attractive. You know, that's all the factors that make any workplace attractive. There must be a strong sense of purpose. There must be a healthy culture. There must be decent pay. There must be the right kind of uh, equipment you know, that a passionate professional looks for. And, and I think an MSP should have all of those things in place and should be able to demonstrate to their customers that they have all of those things in place. And I think one thing that MSPs perhaps have, which other businesses might not, is a focus on cyber and a wide range of problems for their specialists to solve. And, and I guess another advantage for an MSSP because it's providing an online service is that you can fish in the global talent pool. You can uh, have uh, employees from all around the world providing services in secure operation centers. They don't have to be in all in your home location or anything like that. Is that, is that true? I think that's true. I think cultural factors can make it difficult to work with teams that are too widely dispersed. So what you see emerging is generally that you have these pockets of excellence, centers of excellence, where the MSPs established their, their socks and they're able to attract people to, um, to those centers of, of excellence. The other advantage that an MSP also has, of course, is that it can scale on top of those resources. So an MSSP can afford to go out and get the best skills in the market because they know they can apply those skills appropriately across a number of clients. Whereas, you know, for an end user to attract those skills, they only have one set of problems to solve. You know, the economies of scale don't apply as well. And indeed, uh, that means uh, for your security professionals, every day is going to be very different as it comes into work and finds different problems to address in different customers. So it must lead to a, an interesting uh, career. 
Thank you very much to Child of Alter Secure Data for providing these insights into assessing, detecting and responding to cyber threats. And thank you for listening to this EM360 podcast. For more podcasts like this, head to em360tech.com.